Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with more classified documents found at Biden's residence in what can only be described as a gift to Donald Trump, who, although his theft of classified documents is infinitely more egregious, the impression that many independents and much of the public might have is that all presidents do it, and therefore it's not a big deal. Joining us to discuss whether this means Trump is continuing to stay one step ahead of the sheriff and whether it is time for Biden to announce he's not running in 2024 is Jonathan Alter, an analyst and contributing correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He is a former senior editor and columnist for Newsweek, where he worked for 28 years and is the author of The Promise, President Obama, Year One, and The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope both New York Times bestsellers, and his latest books are The Center Holes, Obama and His Enemies, and his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. He runs the Substack newsletter Old Goats, and we will discuss his article at the New York Times, Oh Biden, What Have You Done? Then, with Congressman Ruben Gallego announcing today he's running as a Democrat for the United States Senate seat currently held by Kirsten Sinema, who recently declared herself an independent, we will speak with Jim Small, editor-in-chief of the Arizona Mirror, a non-profit newsroom in Phoenix that covers state and local politics and government. A native Arizonan, he has covered state government, policy and politics since 2004, and previously was the executive director and editor of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting, as well as the editor of the Arizona Capital Times. And we will discuss Diego's impressive life story and his dig at cinema that, quote, the rich and the powerful, they don't need more advocates. Then finally, we'll look into the attacks on academic freedom by Governor DeSantis and at Harvard and Hamline Universities and speak with David Schultz, a professor of political science at Hamline University, and the University of Minnesota Law School. He is the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media, most recently Presidential Swing States, Why Only Ten Matter, Election Law and Democratic Theory, and American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jonathan Alter, an analyst and contrib- an analyst and contributing correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He's a former senior editor and columnist for Newsweek, where he worked for 28 years. His books include The Promise, President Obama, Year One, The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days, and The Triumph of Hope, both New York Times bestsellers, and The Center Holes, Obama and His Enemies, and his latest book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. And he runs the Substack newsletter, Old Goats. Welcome to Background Briefing, 
Jonathan Alter. Glad to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And let's talk about your recent article at the New York Times, which I've, I've been getting lots of mail about, titled, Oh, Biden, What Have You Done? Now, clearly, the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, who's looking into the theft of documents by former President Trump at Mar-a-Lago, where they were improperly stored, etc., it would seem to me that the DOJ has to set an example. Otherwise, how can they prosecute anybody for misuse, theft, or purloining classified documents? There have been a number of people we know about. Reality Winner, for example, who's, who's got a long sentence. So is that what's at stake here, Jonathan, that now that Biden has done the same thing, even though nothing on the same scale as Trump, it undercuts the whole idea that... In other words, is Biden's mistakes trivializing the classification process and therefore letting Trump off the hook? Quite possibly so in a political sense. Um, We don't know whether that'll be true in a legal sense. The two special prosecutors, special counsels, were investigating this. Jack Smith is the special counsel in the Trump case, and he's also looking into uh, Trump's uh, efforts to stage a coup d'etat. Um, but the Mar-a-Lago part of that investigation was considered very promising. And then just quite recently, uh, another um, special counsel named Robert Hur was appointed in the Joe Biden case by Attorney General Merrick Garland. And it's important to stress at the outset of this conversation that Um, Any kind of um, straight equivalence between these two cases, um, um, you used the the words the same thing, I believe is a phony equivalence, um, because in the case of Donald Trump, um, he was asked on more than one occasion to return the documents. He was issued a subpoena for the documents, and he still did not return them. That's why they had to um, raid his compound at Mar-a-Lago. Joe Biden, on the other hand, and we still don't know all the details, was very sloppy because the uh, new uh, classified documents in his home just surfaced uh, within the last few days. Um, But when it became clear that he had these documents, he immediately cooperated with uh, the authorities. Now, did he release the information publicly as quickly as a lot of people wanted him to do? No, but he did cooperate. So the two cases are different. But in answer to your question, um, what Biden has done has been to really muddy this because, you know, busy people without a lot of time, understandably might conclude both these guys have done this and this is bad. And um, that, I think, hurts Biden politically. I think it contributes to the case for why, as I argue, we should not seek uh, re-election. And it's a real source of frustration, even exasperation, for Democrats, because um, basically President Biden has taken away you know, what was a, uh, a really good opportunity to use a basically a political weapon against Trump um, in the Mar-a-Lago case. It may have also complicated the Justice Department's um, 
case against Trump. Um, clearly, there has to be some penalty for both presidents, but um, it would be a lot better, uh, I think, uh, in terms of sending a signal if the penalty directed at Mr. Trump was more severe than the one directed at Mr. Biden. So clearly, the cases are, as you've pointed out, very, very different. But still, the laws are on the books, and people have really gotten stiff sentences for a variety of uh, yeah. c- cases. So, and I mentioned reality winner. So, do you think that the Mar-a-Lago case that Jack Smith has now is a really serious and solid one? Or and we don't know, obviously. But do you think it's one of the best uh, chances of nailing? Uh, you have to admit that Donald Trump has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his professional uh, business life and also his political life and a lot of people think it's about time so how would you rate the many strands in terms of legal assaults on this one character well in answer to your first question um you know um the the biden case is quite different than reality winner or those other cases and different from the trump case because there's no intentionality on joe biden's part and if you look at prior cases, you know, um, the in, intentionality is not just incidental, it's it's central. You know, if you are doing what, say, Bill Clinton's former national security advisor, Sandy Berger did, and like intentionally taking documents out of the National Archives, I think he hid them in his, in his uh, socks or something, he's leaving, or others intentionally um, grabbing documents, um, that um, is a different matter. And what is also a different matter, and this is where, as a legal matter, Trump is quite vulnerable, is if you look at Section 3 of the 1917 Espionage Act, uh, which was passed during World War I, um, it's very clear that if the government requests you to return the documents and you refuse to do so, you are in violation of the Espionage Act. And so um, you mentioned um, this Substack newsletter I have called Old Goats. Um, I interviewed a a real expert in these matters uh, a few weeks ago, and, and he said, you know, Trump is clearly in violation of the Espionage Act. But prosecutions have judgment and often political judgments involved in them. And for lawyers to suggest, well, you know, um, Merrick Garland and Jack Smith, they won't worry at all about the, you know, Biden case. They have to pursue this separately on paper. Yes. But as a political matter, as a practical matter, I, I think it's unlikely that they will go after him on the espionage act. They may, however, go after him on obstruction of justice. Um, you know, we know from the Mueller report, which said that uh, he obstructed justice and that uh, Attorney General Barr at the time um, totally falsified the findings. But this character, Trump, has been obstructing justice all along, and he's kind of dead to rights on that in this Mar-a-Lago case. I, I used to think that it was the best chance to get a federal conviction against Donald Trump. I now... I'm not so sure. Um, And I think it's maybe at this point a little more likely that um, he will be convicted in state court in Georgia. Um, The uh, uh, Georgia district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, is 
expected to uh, decide on returning an indictment against him for the you know the famous case of when he called up and said hey, you know, find me 11,700 votes and she's been pulling together a lot of evidence an initial grand jury is um, has just presented its report to her and we'll see whether she um, moves toward an indictment but I think the odds are quite high that she she will indict Donald Trump and Jonathan Alter, in your recent article at the New York Times, Oh, Biden, what have you done? You mentioned that the president is now an elderly swimmer in a sea of sharks. And apparently he gets very testy if anybody talks about his age in terms of the inner circle. He said before the holidays that he and Jill would talk about his political future over the holidays and he'd make an announcement. The announcement hasn't happened now, but it's a terrible dilemma for him, surely, in terms of uh, if he says he's not running again, he instantly makes himself a lame duck. And, of course, that happened to Teddy Roosevelt, and he wished he could take back those words when he said he's not going to run again. So how does he navigate this dilemma if, indeed, he does decide that maybe he'll not run for a second term? So at the time um, that Teddy Roosevelt... Um, regretted not running again. He was not yet 50 years old. Right. Joe Biden would be 86 at the end of the second term. And by the way, all two-term presidents are lame ducks in their second terms by definition, right? Because they can't run for a third. So this whole question of being a lame duck, I think is really um, almost beside the point. And that actually, if, if Biden decided not to run, um, a lot of his problems would go away, you know, and, and people would forget about his shortcomings and the, uh, you know, the vicious attack dogs in the Republican Party would go chew on somebody else's leg because he's not running again. And I think he would then take his proper place as um, uh, arguably the most accomplished one term president in, in American history. I'm not including people like Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Lyndon Johnson, Harry Truman, who took office um, uh, after the death of their predecessor. And they, in, in their cases, um, they were only elected once, but it's not really fair to call them one-term presidents because they served five, six, seven years in office. But, you know, I think if Biden were to do this, and I'm not holding my breath that he will, um, it would also be better for the Democratic Party because I worry about Biden as a candidate. Um, he's never been a good candidate. He's a much better president than a candidate. And I've covered him on the campaign trail for Newsweek and other publications uh, since uh, 1988 when he first ran for president. And he, you know, he's not good on the defensive, which he's going to be now. He's, he wasn't good before he got old. And he gets a little worse every campaign. So the idea of him out there getting swift voted and trying to, you know, defend himself, um, I think, would put him at a real disadvantage against a younger candidate like uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, and there, there's even uh, a, a poll in the last couple of days that shows him slipping behind Trump in head to head matchups. So the idea that, oh, we Democrats need to nominate Biden because he's proven in the past he can beat Trump. I think that's old thinking at this point. And the Democrats would be well advised to, uh, you know, nominate somebody else. And um, 
It would be much easier if Biden decided to uh, not seek reelection, but the odds right now are that he's going to go ahead and after his State of the Union address, he's going to move forward with plans. They seem very determined to do it. Apparently, Jill Biden is supportive of this idea. But I think even then, I think he could be upset in the New Hampshire primaries, very unpopular in New Hampshire because of uh, his get, taking away them being first in the nation. So they're now the second week. So about a year from now, we're going to have the New Hampshire primary. And I think he's cruising for a bruising there if he's um, still in the race. But I don't, you know, a lot of people go, oh, well, then, you know, bloody primary fight. I don't think it would be that bloody because I think whoever opposed him would say, look, I'm doing this more in sorrow than in anger. He's been a good president, but it's just time for new leadership. These elections are about the future. We need to look forward. And people then, you know, when I talk to other people about this, like, well, who will it be? Will it be Kamala Harris? Will it be so-and-so? Pete Buttigieg. And my answer to that is that's what primaries are for. You know, I mean, I wrote a book about Jimmy Carter that you mentioned and and Barack Obama. They were both way behind the year before the election. Jimmy Carter at this point in 1975, a year before the primaries, he was at zero percent and he became the Democratic nominee and the president. Barack Obama was 30 to 40 points behind Hillary Clinton in the polls. So, you know, it doesn't have to be somebody that everybody's heard of. You can get famous very quickly in this country. And, and I think it would be good for the party to nominate a younger candidate. Well, history shows us that the most successful Democratic candidates and presidents tend to come out of nowhere, in effect. You know, right. Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and particularly Barack Obama. So do exactly. you see any do you see any wild cards? I must say I was incredibly impressed by Hakeem Jeffries' speech late into the yeah. night after 15 votes when he basically humiliated the guy that just had a Pyrrhic victory with a most powerful speech. I mean, he's a talent, is he not? He really is. Now, he's not going to run because sure. you know, his goal is to be Speaker of the House, but... Um, and I'm not sure, you know, like nobody comes to mind right now who's another um, Barack Obama or even a, a Hakeem Jeffries in terms of uh, rousing an audience. Although Cory Booker, you know, gives a very, very good speech. There's a lot of talent um, in the Democratic Party. And then there are other people who nobody has thought of at all. I mean, I met a longtime Democratic uh, um operative who was telling me to take a look at Roy Cooper, who's the governor of North Carolina and who I don't know very much about. Now he, you know, he doesn't like knock your socks off right away, but there's a lot of different ways of running for president and being a, a great um, motivational speaker is only, only one quality. Um, Gavin Newsom, uh, where you are, you know, he has said that he, won't run if Joe Biden runs. But if Biden were to decide not to, he would, I think, immediately become a candidate. And um, I think a Newsom-DeSantis race, you know, could be very interesting. Now, people are saying, uh, you hear people saying, well, you know, Trump is still going to win the nomination. I think like Biden, Trump's age is showing. And he is, 
doing politically stupid things like alienating evangelicals who are a very important part of his base. So I think the idea that he's definitely going to be the Republican nominee is, is way premature. And there, in many focus groups, a lot of the respondents in, in, uh, prefer DeSantis. And you could also have a situation where if DeSantis knocks Trump out, then other maybe more attractive Republicans than DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin or uh, you know, uh, Brian Kemp comes forward. So a lot can happen in the next year and a half. And if the history of American politics is any indication, it will. You know, I, I just don't think the odds of a Trump-Biden rematch uh, are very are very great. Where you had a, a 82-year-old running against a 78-year-old, it just doesn't. It it's, just doesn't make sense. Now, whether Biden kind of understands this and realizes that he really would be better off if he, um, um, you know, packed it in and concentrated on Ukraine and these other issues that he would be better off in terms of his legacy and he would not risk being humiliated. Whether he has the self-knowledge for that, I don't know. I know Joe Biden. I've covered him a lot. I wrote a New York Times magazine profile of him in 2016 and went around the world with him. Um, and I've had plenty of conversations with him, but even I and other reporters who know him much better than I do and, and Democrats, who, you know, who know him better than I do, even they do not know for sure what he's going to decide. And before this document story, it seemed quite likely that he was going to, uh, run for re-election. We don't know whether he might assess after the State of the Union, which uh, I think will be very important. Like if he if he gives a boffo, fantastic State of the Union address and really rallies, seems like he's got it together, then I think he'll b- probably go ahead and run. If, um, you know, it's looking like his uh, appeal is a little frayed, especially with independence and and younger voters, then, um, you know, maybe he will reassess. He has accomplished something significant politically beyond his legislative victories in pulling together the progressive and moderate wings of the Democratic Party. And that's no small thing. And I think he deserves a credit for that. And that's not necessarily transferable to somebody else. But I don't think the Democrats are in a mood to have a bloody internecine struggle, which is why Biden would still be the favorite to get the nomination. I think they, they believe the stakes are very high and, um, you know, democracy is on the line. Um, and so it's important to get this right. But the question is whether Biden is really the strongest candidate to hold the White House. So, Jonathan Alder, just in the last minute then, to, just to touch on the Republicans, and you mentioned DeSantis. Of course, Fox News is is pumping him, and they will continue to raise his profile. So I don't know whether it's wishful thinking uh, on the part of the Democrats, but there are two possible scenarios vis-a-vis Trump. One is that it's true that he's fading, but on the other hand, could he repeat what happened in 2016 where you have a large field of challenges, and there are a bunch of them out there. There's no shortage of ambition amongst the Republicans. Nikki Haley's already indicated that she's probably going to run. So they tend to split their vote to the point where 
you know, you can win with a 30% vote, which is what Trump did in 2016. The other alternative, which is perhaps even more wishful thinking, is that if DeSantis uh, does too well, Trump, will, in a petulant way, will pick up his marbles and walk off and form a third party. Do you see any of those two scenarios being possible? Yeah, I think they're both possible. The latter one would be wonderful for the republic. You know, if Trump went off and and, uh, and formed a third party and ran as a third party, it would assure the election of a Democrat. But, you know, it could get them complicated on the Democratic side. Joe Manchin just said on Meet the Press yesterday that he might run as an independent. He indicated, he hinted that he might run as an independent for president. And that would uh, really scramble things. Um, and I agree with you that I think there's a danger of Republican uh, challengers splitting the anti-Trump vote. But what could also happen is that, you know, a bunch of them get in at the beginning and then one of them, DeSantis or somebody else, does uh, better than the others and, and they drop out and unify behind him to stop Trump, which is what happened on the Democratic side. Remember, Biden had been crushed in Iowa and New Hampshire in 2020, but after he won South Carolina, the other leading candidates all dropped out because they thought it was so important uh, to unify behind one candidate to, to stop Trump. And I think that there are a lot of Republicans who think that Trump is a loser. You know, he's he's basically lost the last three elections. Um, a bunch of the candidates he endorsed lost in 2022. He lost in 2020, even though we won't admit it. And they got clobbered in the 2018 midterms. So there are a lot of Republicans who will put a lot of pressure on you know, the Nikki Haley's of the world to, to drop out um, so that they can have DeSantis or somebody else who would have a much better chance of taking the White House than than Trump. But, um, you know, I think Democrats view as much as they might dislike DeSantis, even fear DeSantis, they view Trump as a unique evil, um, unique uh, menace to our constitutional uh, republic, uh, our democracy. And so, you know, there are the assessments that are going to be going on are who is the strongest person to beat Trump. But what I would just urge Democrats is, is you know, don't assume that we have to know who that is right now. Don't assume that the party will be saddled with, say, Kamala Harris, even if she's not popular in primaries. Democratic voters will sort this out. That's what primaries are for is to find out who the new leader should be. And so it could be a, you know, an obscure candidate. It could be somebody that voters know better now, like Pete Buttigieg or somebody like that. We simply don't know at this point yet. It's, it's too early. But what I've been urging is that we have an open conversation about this. And I, if anybody wants to kind of engage with me on it directly, you can go to old, um, um, oldgoats.substack.com, and I will answer your questions and respond to your opinions about um, what the Democrats should do. Well, Jonathan Alter, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Alter, who's an analyst and contributing correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He's a former senior editor and columnist for Newsweek, where he worked for 28 years. He's the author of The Promise, President Obama, Year One, and The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days, and The Triumph of Hope, both of which are New York Times bestsellers. And his latest books are The Center Holes, Obama and His Enemies, and his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. And he runs the Substack newsletter, Old Goats. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the announcement today by Congressman Ruben Callego that he's running as a Democrat for the U.S. Senate seat currently held by Kirsten Sinema, who recently declared herself an independent. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, closer. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jim Small, the editor-in-chief of the Arizona Mirror, a non-profit newsroom in Phoenix that covers state and local politics and government, a native Arizonan. He has covered state government policy and politics since 2004, and previously was the executive director and editor of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting, as well as the editor of the Arizona Capital Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jim Small. Thanks for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jim. And the other shoe has dropped in terms of challenging Senator Kirsten Sinema. Representative Ruben Gallego, has the progressive Democrat from Phoenix, has announced today that he's running. And it looks as though we haven't heard anything from Senator Sinema. Do you expect anything? Is she going to sort of pretend that it's no big deal, even though it obviously is? Yeah, I don't. I don't think we'll hear anything from her, at least not right away. Um, I think that it, it'll be curious. I, you know, I think everyone's kind of interested to see what her response will be when it comes. Um, you know, but at, at, at a certain level, like this is not unexpected. I, you know, Representative uh, has been saber rattling for months now that he was wanting to take on Kirsten Cinema. First, obviously, when she was a Democrat, I think that there was a, a big push to get him to uh, to challenge her in a primary election. Now that she has left the party and is is a registered uh, independent, uh, no, no uh, registered with no party. Uh, now, you know, I think the, the field was cleared for Democrats to to jump in and not have to worry about the, you know, the the stigma of of challenging an incumbent. Uh, and, and so. Uh, he, you know, with Representative Gallego getting in there, I think it's clear you know, Democrats are going to have a clear front runner, uh, and and in fact they they might not even have a contested primary, um, you know, and and so it'll it'll really everything will move to the general. I think all of the the uh, the attempts to get rid of Kirsten Cinema from the left wing of the Democratic Party uh, is, is going to be moving from our August primary to the November general, assuming that Kirsten Cinema stays stays in the race. But won't this split the coalition of Democrats and independents, uh, which is how Democrats get elected in Arizona? Oh, 100%. I think if Kirsten Cinema insists on standing for re-election, I think a couple things are going to happen. I think, one, she's going to lose, <clears throat> and she's going to lose probably pretty badly. And two, it's going to pave the way for uh, Republicans to get a potentially a fairly easy pickup in a state that has – has been Democrats have held an advantage in the U.S. Senate races. You know, we've had three cycles in a row where Democrats have won. Uh, Kirsten Sinema in 2018, Mark Kelly in a special election in 2020, and then Mark Kelly just this past November uh, being elected to a full term. Uh, that's the, the last three races Democrats have won here. That is something that really hasn't happened. I, I think it, you have to go back to, gosh, I want to say it's like the 1960s, the last time that we had both of our U.S. senators as Democrats. And you know, I think it really does speak to what you're talking about, right? It's it's a coalition. Republicans have the voter registration advantage, 
Uh, but Democrats have done a really good job of of a holding on to their base of voters. Uh, Democrats, when they go to the polls, uh, these Democratic candidates are getting 90 to 95 percent roughly of Democratic voters. And they're also heavily winning independents. They're winning, you know, uh, three out of five, two out of three uh, independent voters. And that's really what swung it, as, as well as, uh, you know, pulling up a handful of Republicans, you know, maybe 10 or 12 percent of Republicans and sweeping them in uh, because the Republicans have nominated candidates that have uh, e- either been too extreme or or have just been too close to Trump and Trumpism uh, the, that it, it turns off a certain number of Republicans and they've gone for the, the more centrist Democrat. Uh, you know, if Kirsten Sinema stays in the race, she definitely scrambles that. And the advantage of the winner of that is likely going to be a Republican. And that Republican, though, could be Carrie Lake or it could be Blake Masters, both of whom lost. And, of course, Carrie Lake still insists that she didn't lose. So she may actually be a very weak candidate. Absolutely. I, we, we don't know who the Republicans are going to going to nominate or who's going to throw their hat in the ring for that. Uh, this past cycle, I think we saw, gosh, six, five or six Republicans jump in to challenge Mark Kelly. Uh, I would imagine we'd probably see something similar this time. Although if a, you know, a, a kind of a, a big name like a Carrie Lake were to jump in, I think that that could change the dynamics a little bit. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, so far, Carrie Lake's focus has solely been on trying to litigate and relitigate and re-relitigate the results of the 2022 election. Uh, I don't know that she has turned her attention yet to what's going to be in her future uh, and, and if that's going to be elected office. So what are the chances then, do you think, of Senator Sinema deciding not to run at all? In other words, a lot of her critics think that she's been a kind of shill for corporate America and for big business and for wealthy individuals because she did stymie a bunch of Biden's initiatives to essentially tax the rich to pay for some of his ambitious programs in the Build Back Better bill that she scuttled along with the uh, senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who is indicating that he might run for president. So are the critics right that she was just in it for the money and, and that she'll get a big payoff? because she was so kind to wealthy donors and Wall Street, et cetera? Well, I, I do think that very regularly, right, you'll see people who will leave uh, the U.S. House or uh, the U.S. Senate, especially those who've been there for a long time and, and, and maybe played pivotal roles, they will leave and they will go, you know, work for corporate America or they'll go work for a lobbying firm. And they will, you know, essentially cash in on their, their time in, uh, in the U.S. Capitol. I wouldn't be shocked at all if something similar happens, you know, to Kirsten Cinema if, if she makes that choice. I will say, you know, when it comes to that decision of whether she's going to run in run run in twenty twenty four, I I I can't predict at all what's gonna happen and I, I certainly don't have any inside knowledge other than the fact that I've known Senator Cinema for a long time. I, I started covering our state legislature the same year that she got elected to the legislature. Uh, I've watched her political career really uh, pretty intently from, you know, every step of the way along, you know, from the state house to the state Senate to the halls of Congress to the U.S. Senate. And in, you know, my read of her is that she is not someone who willingly walks into uh, situations where she's going to lose and where she is especially going to lose badly and be embarrassed. And, and I think that that's kind of what's at stake for her right now in this U.S. Senate contest. 
uh, we've seen a couple of, of polls in the last few weeks. And, and mind you, these are obviously very early polls, and polls are not predictive. They are just kind of a snapshot in time. But in a three-way race between Carrie Lake, Ruben Gallego, and Kirsten Sinema, uh, she's not just losing, but she is losing horribly. She's, she's pulling anywhere between about 10 and 15% of the vote. That's abysmal for an incumbent sitting senator because the reality is that I do not think that there's really a path to victory for someone running as a third party in a three-way race, uh, not in Arizona at least. Uh, you know, the reality is that in order to win here, you know, liberal candidates need to hold on to the Democratic base. They need to pick up a solid majority of the independent voters, and they need to peel off 10 to 15 percent of Republicans. And if you're not doing that, then you're not winning. And there's not really a path forward for a third party to do that, to break through that tribalism that exists, uh, especially among Democrats who, frankly, really despise Kirsten Sinema at this point. I think the, the, the vast majority of Democrats are sick of her and are in some ways, I think, really glad that she left the party because now she's not their problem. And, and so if I had to put money on it right now, on, you know, on this, on this day, I would say that she, she does not run for reelection and that we end up with a traditional two-way race between Ruben Gallego uh, and uh, whoever the Republican nominee is. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, Griego released a campaign video today where it's pretty inspiring. You know, he, he was brought up with a single mother in, in Chicago, one of four children. He made it to Harvard University where he worked his way through college, cleaning toilets, etc. And then he enlisted in the Marine Corps and was in combat in, in the front lines of Iraq. In fact, I interviewed him about his experiences in Iraq a while back lost his closest friend in Iraq, and he had PTSD as well. And in this video, he said, which is clearly a dig at cinema, the rich and the powerful, they don't need more advocates. It's the people that are still fighting to decide between groceries and utilities that need a fighter for them. So do you think that message is going to resonate? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it does. And, and And honestly, you know, what's interesting about that too is that that's a lot of that's not too far off from the message that Kirsten Sinema had when she ran for Senate the first time, right? Like she was running up against Martha McSally, who uh, was a Air Force veteran, was Republican, but but was seen, you know, I, I think in in kind of the the more generic like Republicans doing the bidding of big business, and and Kirsten Sinema sought to kind of contrast herself with Martha McSally, and you know Kirsten Sinema likes like Ruben Gallego, right? Grew up poor. Uh, she was at, you know, at various points in her childhood, she was homeless. I mean, they were they were a family that lived, you know, hand to mouth and didn't know necessarily where their next meal was going to come from. And so she has a similar upbringing. And, you know, I, I think that that is honestly what's really shocking to a lot of people in Arizona, particularly uh, on the left, is that how did someone come from that background and, you know, have that kind of story and, and upbringing and end up sort of where Kirsten Cinema is and uh, someone who is seen as an ally to the big businesses and the corporations and, uh, you know, the hedge funds and, and, you know, the people who are already millionaires and billionaires. And, and, and so it absolutely is a message that resonates. We've seen it resonate before. And, you know, I think that it, politically, I think it's uh, a shrewd move to start your campaign off that way, uh, with, as Ruben Gallego is doing. Well, Jim Small, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jim Small, who's the editor-in-chief of the Arizona Mirror. 
a non-profit newsroom in Phoenix that covers state and local politics and government. He's a native Arizona and he's covered state government policy and politics since 2004 and previously was executive director and editor of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting as well as the editor of the Arizona Capital Times. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into attacks on academic freedom by Governor DeSantis and at Harvard and Hamline Universities. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Schultz, a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He is the author of over 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media. Most recently, Presidential Swing States, Why Only Ten Matter, Election Law and Democratic Theory, and American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Schultz. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And I've sort of been following, not closely, but following what happened at Hamline University where you teach, where a professor of art history showed a painting, a 14th century painting of of the founder of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad. And she apparently warned the class earlier and went to great lengths before she even did the lecture, she said, anybody has a problem, please contact her. Nobody did. And then in the class itself, she told the students that in a moment they'd be showing some paintings that uh, many Muslims and Buddhists object to. So if anybody would be disturbed by this, they can leave the class. And nobody apparently wanted to leave. And then suddenly it all blew up. So what's the latest? What's the status now of this Erica Lopez Prada, the professor who's been fired. Look, a couple of things to also add to the picture here. She was an adjunct professor, and and reason why I mention this is that she was on a um, um, a contract, not not a permanent employee. And this is important to understand here because that even though um, academic freedom protects her right and should protect her right to be able to conduct her class and do materials the way she is. She is like many other faculty in this country, a contingent employee, you know, with no benefits and and no guarantee of employment. And so the school originally tried to say that, well, we just chose not to renew her, her, um, her employment for the spring semester. Um, And that's probably not accurate um, given the context, but that's just important to understand the story here. So where we are right now is that earlier this week, um, the the professor who was who um, who was at the center of this, um, her law, she hired an attorney, this, uh, and they are suing the school, arguing defamation of character because when all this blew up, um, they described her. The several in the administration described her showing of that painting as Islamic phobic, um, um, as discriminatory. And so she's claiming, you know, defamation of character. Um, the school has done a partial um, rollback um, right before the lawsuit was filed. It said that perhaps we made some mistakes. 
And so that's sort of where we are at this point right now, is that um, the, the story has hit you know, national and international media. Uh, the New York Times, BBC has covered it. Um, it's, it's, it's absolutely everywhere. And it's really put Hamlin University at the center of a major fight over free speech and academic freedom. And two uh, of the university officials weighed in, Marcella Kostihova. She said that Dr. Lopez Pratis showing the uh, video of the 14th century painting of the, of the Prophet Muhammad, she compared that to using a racial epithet for black people. And then David Everett, the vice president for, what is it, uh, Inclusive Excellence, I guess that's his title at the university, he said Correct. that the class that she was teaching was undeniably inconsiderate, disrespectful, and Islamophobic. So that's the basis of why she's suing now, right? The professor, correct. the adjunct professor. Right, correct. I mean, from from a perspective of of saying that um, was she fired because of of what she did in the class? That's the basis of her lawsuit. But she's also arguing that the statements that you just read uh, basically are defamation of character. You know, in terms of essentially calling her what a you know Islamophobic or a racist and. I will obviously, of course, leave that up to the lawyers and the legal process to, you know, to resolve whether or not she has, you know, a legal claim. Um, but, but certainly, you've captured, you know, where where the fight is and who has said what. Right, and the president of Hamline, Fenice uh, Miller, she co-signed an email that said, "Respect for the Muslim students should have superseded academic freedom," and that a town hall. An invited Muslim speaker compared showing the images to teaching that Hitler was good. So this has really created a kind of firestorm within the, the Islamic community there in St. Paul, right? Correct. And now what's also become interesting in terms of making it even more complicated is that the local Islamic association um, has said that it's Islamic phobic. But the parent organization for it, the national one, um, has taken the opposite position. And so even within, let us say, the Islamic community, you've got differences of opinion regarding um, you know, what this means, whether, whether um, showing the picture of the Prophet Muhammad um, is Islamic phobic, and even within that discussion, whether or not the professors have a right within a classroom as part of a learning exercise to do something like this. And so how, the, how some people are framing the issue is, is an issue of academic freedom versus um, Islamophobia. Um, I think that's the wrong framing of the issue. Um, the framing of the issue is, is really an issue about academic freedom and about um, free speech and understanding that there's a difference between, let's say, somebody spray painting the, you know, the N-word on a dormitory door versus um, having an academic discussion about, about paintings or about, let us say, racism and so forth. And I think that's what's being missed in the issue here is that this was a class looking at sort of a history of what well, I think it was Western art or medieval art. I'm not exactly sure what it was. And within that context, 
trying to talk about works of art that were considered to be significant in terms of contributing to, you know, the Western canon of art, including those works within the Islamic community. Well, that's what the course was, right? International art, and and also it included Islamic art. And this is a 14th century painting that's apparently well known. And the objection Muslims have is that they believe that a visual representation of the Prophet shouldn't be viewed, even if the Quran apparently does not specifically say that. But the notion of this prohibition, it you know, comes out of this idea that, that an image of Muhammad could lead to worshipping the prophet rather than the God he serves. That's the, that's the logic and that's the objection. But again, this professor warned that this was in the syllabus and uh-huh. said if anybody was going to be upset that they shouldn't come to the class. And then before she showed the image, she said that uh, if anybody has any concerns, they should say so now, and nobody did. And I don't know who, who it was. A senior in the class complained, and then then other Muslim students not taking the course, they supported this student, and that's when the uh, thing snowballed. So, you know, when you look about the other stuff that's happening in terms of academic freedom issues with Ken Roth, the former head of human, or current head of Human Rights Watch, who's retiring, he was denied a teaching post a research post, actually, at Harvard University, and there was sufficient outcry about the assault on academic freedom that uh, Harvard had to reverse that and reinstate Ken Roth or you know, reinstate the offer. And, of course, you've got Governor DeSantis in Florida banning the teaching of African-American history, which is just so deeply racist and such a, a naked, disgusting pandering to the worst instincts in the Trump base, telling them that we shouldn't have to be bothered with the reality of slavery and right. et cetera, because, you know, maybe it makes a few sensitive white people uncomfortable. I mean, it's an outrage what's happening there. So how do you put it in those contexts? Well, how I put it into context of understanding, first off, we, sh- we can't do a false equivalency, you know, in the sense of saying, well, DeSantis is doing one thing, um, you know, people are being politically correct on the other side, and therefore there's no difference. What I've been arguing is that we have to understand what's happening um, with, with Harvard, with a lot of schools at this point, is in terms of what, the creation of the corporate university. And really the corporate university has been a product of something for the last 30 to 40 years, where universities, you know, we don't like to admit them, are, 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 have become what, have become um, run like corporations, faculty are losing control over the curriculum. It used to be at one point where the majority of faculty teaching um, were tenured or tenure track. Now barely one third of them are. Um, so we have a very small percentage. Most universities, in an effort to make money and save money, are just employing part-time contingent faculty members to teach a class here and there with no benefits. And really the emergence of the corporate university um, is all about delivering an educational package that will please donors um, and will please you know business corporations, of which in many places they get their money from. And academic freedom now becomes um, secondary to that uni- to the corporate university's mission, or academic freedom 
only serves the corporate goals of the university. And that's really what's happening in higher education across the country right now, is that it's a dramatic restructuring of, of, of again, of, of education and the purposes of education to meet these corporate imperatives. Well, that's certainly the case at Harvard with Ken Ross. It was they were pandering to some donor who obviously made complaints about him, about Ken Ross' stance on Israel. So that did him in, and that shows you the cowardice of the dean there, pandering to a, a wealthy donor. In the case of your university, Hamlin, they quickly hung this woman out to dry. I mean, you, as you mentioned, she was adjunct. She doesn't have any benefits, and she's on a short-term contract. But they did seem to reflexively go after her. And what what explains that? It wasn't it wasn't as if a, a wealthy donor with his name on one of the buildings at the university complained. What led to this preemptive move on the part of the administration to hang this woman out to dry? What I suspected is is that Minneapolis-St. Paul area um, is also um, home to some of the largest percentages of Somali um, Ethiopian um, refugees in the you know in, in the world. I mean, we have very large populations here. Um, the Twin Cities is rapidly transforming itself from being mostly white and Christian. Um, St. Paul, where Hamlin is located, has now become a majority non-white um, city. And I think what it is is that as the percentage of let's say 18-year-old white Christians um, is going down um, in Minnesota as well and nationwide. And as the country is is transforming itself, uh, what schools like Hamlet are doing is looking to where they can find um, uh, a, a population. I hate to use the word customer, but I'm going to use that in terms of the corporate university. They're looking at their future customers. And I think that's what happens here, is that it's a, um, it's looking to where it can find its new customers and decided that it would privilege, in this case, perhaps, the the um, sensibilities of, of, of some students at the expense of, of a broader academic mission um, of free speech and of free inquiry. So the doctor... Erica Lopez Prada, she's suing, but she's lost her job, right? And Correct. What is the latest from the student leader who seems to be leading this protest? Miss Wittatala? Wittatala, uh, correct. She yeah, has, she she's has, a business she major has, and president of the University's Muslim Student Association. Is she uh, satisfied with firing this woman? or Obviously, she hasn't gone away because she's suing, right? She, well, she, um, well, the, the student has also, from my understanding, has transferred out of the school also. So, so now going into our semester, which starts at the end of end of um, January, both the professor and both the the student have both left the university. Do we know why the student left? Um, she basically said she did not feel, from what I understand. Um, and I'm reading like local press accounts, um, says she no longer felt comfortable um, at Hamblin University and has opted to transfer, transfer elsewhere. Well, as I say, in the, in the context of real attacks on academic freedom, in fact, in the case of Governor DeSantis of Florida, 
he's attacking history itself. He's, right. he's wanting to whitewash and rewrite history. You also have that underway with the new Republican House, led by Kevin McCarthy, where they want to re rewrite the history of what happened on January the 6th and turn these insurrectionists into heroes and martyrs. I mean, this is a real problem. I'm not sure that what happened in St. Paul rises to that level. I'm not sure it does either. That's why I'm saying we have to be concerned about people not doing the false equivalencies here. I think the major attacks that are coming where we have Republicans saying at one point January 6th was what, a tourist v visit or something like that, or, or what was it just recently when DeSantis down in Florida said they're not going to offer this one class because, or, or not approve this one class because it made some white students feel what, what, feel uncomfortable or feel ashamed about slavery? Well, hell yes, we ought to feel uncomfortable and we ought to feel ashamed about slavery. I mean, there's something fundamentally different there, you know, um, or the fact that Harvard University capitulates, you know, um, because of a donor. So we, we have to be thinking in terms of we are seeing these assaults on academic freedom across the country, but they're and they're, and they're, and they're dangerous. They all are dangerous, but they're not equivalent attacks. And there's attacks going on on history. And we have to be cognizant to understand that a lot of this attacks is why efforts to whitewash or efforts to um, hide a really ugly history of the United States. I mean, think about also what with the New York Times, which oftentimes is, is again just a bastion of sort of neoliberalism, but their effort to try to do the 1619 project to really remind us that why we're a country that has roots in slavery. There's an awful lot of people who don't want to talk about that ugly side of American history. And if anything, we probably need to be talking more about, about the ugly side of American history to recognize the racism, the classism, the sexism. That's, that's unfortunately part of what this country is about, and we're never going to be able to get beyond it unless we understand those roots. And that's part of what academic freedom is about. It's about being able to what? To talk about these issues in class, to be able to say, let's critically understand, uh, you know, what our history is about, um, how we've treated people. And that becomes a starting point for understanding um, um, real diversity, in my opinion. To real diversity starts with the recognition of real free speech, of real academic freedom. Well, David Schultz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Schultz, who's a professor of political science at Hamlin University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He's the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media. Most recently, Presidential Swing States, Why Only Ten Matter, Election Law and Democratic Theory, and American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave In this land here of the free When time was night One more light goes out.